So let's let's get started then from First John chapter two. Can you read for us, Sami, from verse one to verse six? First John chapter two from verse one. My little children, these things are right to you, so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly, the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Okay, thank you very much, Sami. Um, so these first six verses are quite interesting. I'm sure they are interesting to you as well, right? Um, and it's very clear here that or maybe maybe it's not very clear maybe i should start by asking us what is john's emphasis in this first in this first um, six verses right what does john want us to have because remember that in the first chapter we've looked at fellowship right so whatever it is that john is writing about here is the primary product of fellowship right is the primary offshoot of fellowship and if you look at these six verses, you will notice that the word know is repeated severally. And that's a theme of the letter as well, that knowing things with an assurance, with a conviction, with a confidence. But here, this is not about knowing things. This is not about knowing that God loves me. This is not about knowing that God is holy. This is about knowing him. And the Greek word translated know here, when he says, I know him, we know him, is the word ginosko. Ginosko is the most intimate kind of knowledge you can have as a person. In fact, the Hebrew equivalent, right, the Jewish equivalent to ginosko is what the Bible says in the book of Genesis, right, that Adam knew his wife and she conceived. That's an intimate kind of knowledge. It's not a knowledge that you can acquire just by acquaintance right? It's not a knowledge that you can acquire um, just by being around something. You have to fellowship with that thing in an intimate and private and personal way in order to know it. And that's why Jesus said to Philip, if you remember in John chapter 14, when he said, show us the father and it's sufficient for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you do not know me? The word know there was not gnosis, a, a head knowledge. Of course, he knew Jesus. He knew how he looked. He could identify him in the market, in the street. The word was not even epignosis, right? So Jesus was not even asking him for a precise knowledge of who Jesus is. So what he was asking him for was ginosko, an intimate knowledge. Have you not discerned me? Have you not come to a realization of who and what I am? And this is very important, right? Because if knowing God is supposed to be the primary outcome of fellowship, it means that your knowledge of God 
my knowledge of God is the primary antidote to, to every problem that we will have and every problem that we do have. We have said before that the greatest molecule in the Christian life, pardon my use of the word molecule, but if there's any such measurements, right? The greatest molecule in the Christian life is our access to knowledge and not just a knowledge that was taught us, not just a knowledge that we learned, but a knowledge that we gain by experience, by engaging, by intimacy. And he begins in verse one of chapter two by saying that, because now I'm inverting it, right? I started looking at the knowing before I, before going back to verse one so that you understand the basis for verse one. Verse one says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, so that the, the, the extent of your knowledge of God is what is going to determine your relationship with sin. So that just in case you are a believer and sin is ruling in your life, the antidote to that state of affairs is to know him. Is to know him. That's why he, that's why John invites us to fellowship. That's why we have koinonia with the father. That is why the father makes himself that available to us. The end goal is that we might know him. So, so my, my question before we before we look at this, you know, in order of how it goes to us is, what does it mean then to know God? How else would you describe it so that we're not speaking in, in vague or, or trans or translucent or or abstract terms, right? So that we're speaking in the language that you can relate with every day. What does it mean to know God? If knowing God is so crucial and the first element here is that the the issue of sin which dwells in our mortal bodies can be dealt with by the knowledge of god what does it mean to know god like this mm, maybe knowing his voice having that organic relationship with god i think okay intimate relationship knowing his will Knowing his voice, I, I really don't know, mm -hmm. but I'm just guessing. Knowing God is knowing his will, knowing his voice, okay. I think that's a good one. Someone else? Well, I would say from the, from the place we read there, he's saying that the commandments, keeping his commandments, is the is a true mark of someone who knows him because you can't mm. claim to know him and then not keep his commandments. Mm. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that answer. So keeping his commandment. We're going to get to that verse and see like the exact context in which it was used, right? But what I wanted to point out was something that Jesus said that, that eternal life means. And that's in the in the real Lord's Prayer. And by that I mean the prayer that Jesus actually prayed. Right? In John chapter 17, verse 1 to 3, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. We don't have time. We're not doing John 17 today, but here you can see the permutation of glory, that the extent of the glory that is in our lives 
is the extent to which God knows that that glory can give him glory. It says, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Eternal life is, is, is classified as a knowledge. Right? Because if I ask you what you understand by eternal life, what you understand by eternal life is that eternal life is an organic life, right? That you receive inside your spirit. Right? It is a it is a thing, it's not a knowledge, it's a thing, as it were. But Jesus is saying that eternal life is to know God. What I'm trying to bring out here is that what it means to know God is to be one with Him. To be one with Him. Because you see. The Bible says that he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. But you see, you are not just a spirit, right? You are also soul, you are body, and God is as interested in your soul and your body as he is in your spirit. But he begins, he begins the initiation process, if you like. He begins the marriage from your spirit. And eternal life is that that person that has come to dwell inside of you will become your very life that you will be so one with god that when you're talking it is god that is talking i don't know if you've if you've heard yourself before you said certain things and then when you finish saying it you now realize that kai this thing i just said <laughs> it's not god and it cannot be god if you have ever had that experience that is proof that you are beginning to know god because there are some people that can talk or it's possible even for you to talk and not realize that this thing you said is not God. Eternal life is to be so one with God that your thoughts become his thoughts, that, that your words become, his words become your words, his actions become your actions, right? And you are so one with him that he's then not afraid to invest his glory in your life. And so you see that it's a journey. This is what you might call the crown of life. This is what you might call the meaning of life. That there is nothing else you can know, right? As much as God that can satisfy you. Whether it is sex, or it is food, or it is rest, or it is championships, or it is accomplishments. None of those is eternal life. Life eternal refers to the thing that endlessly feels endlessly satisfies endlessly amazes and there is nothing that qualifies as life eternal except the knowledge of god and we're going to see how that develops in john's letter but i wanted to make the point for us to have that definition right that what it means to know god is to be one with him it's to be one with him and that oneness is a journey right and then Going back to verse 1, Stephanie, your hand is up. Thank you for this, Josh. I'm just wondering, you see this oneness, just humor me, right? Are there times where people will be like, oh, I'm one with God now. And then, I mean, that oneness, does it fluctuate? <laughs> because <laughs> it feels like, oh, okay, 
I believe that in my, um, you can be in those seasons where like, oh, I, I believe I'm one with God and blah, blah, blah. And then before you know it, you are, you have so derailed. You so know that you are not one at that point in time. Or is this something that is like justification where we just have to believe by faith that this is the case? Okay. Well, there is no one size fits all solution to that problem right because the way god made it possible for us to know him right is that he had to create the legal premise for it and by the legal premise i mean that he has created he has created the possibility for it that's what it means right by he that is joined to the lord is one spirit with him there's nothing you can do to change that except if you deny your salvation but as long as you have not denied your salvation that's still a reality right? It's just like when husband and wife come together in copulation. When that happens, a reality has formed, even though after that coming together, there might not be intimacy between them. In fact, there might be fights between them. But you see, their coming together has formed something. It's now a question of how much are they going to develop what has formed, right? What to be the character of what has formed? What to be the texture of what has formed? So you're right that legally, positionally, I think that's a better expression, positionally, we are one with the Spirit of God. That at the core of every Christian is the life of God. And that life of God allows you to know God. That doesn't change because you committed a sin. That only changes if you lose your salvation or if you deny Jesus. That's when it changes. But it doesn't change because you made a mistake. It doesn't change because you had a bad day. Right, God does not have mood swings about his decisions, and that's why he makes them judicial. Remember, in chapter 1, he says he's faithful and just to forgive you. So he has made the forgiveness of your sin a matter of justice, not a matter of um, feeling, but a matter of justice. And he's faithful to that justice to forgive you. So even though a Christian falls into sin, even though a Christian makes mistakes, the, the basic oneness with the Lord remains. It's now a question of how would that oneness develop? And you'll notice that when sin comes in the picture, that oneness begins to diminish, right? In terms of its ability to be the dominant characteristics in, in your life. Right? But it's not possible for a Christian to know all that there is to know of God. If not, it will not be called eternal life, number one. If not, he will not be God. The reason it's called eternal life is that eternity is not enough to know all. So it's a mistake for you to believe, ah, I'm one with God now. At the very best, you are, you are one with God in some things, in some areas, you know, okay, in this area, God has helped me. But you see, Paul, Paul, said that I am, he, do, I, he doesn't hold the language of assurance in that matter. He said, this one thing I do, I forget the things that are past. Oh, yesterday was wonderful. I didn't make one single mistake yesterday. I did everything that the Lord asked me to do. But, but I realized that there's an excellency of a knowledge. There is a, there is a high calling. There is a promise of greater things. So I forget what is past. And I press on. So when it comes to the matter of knowing God, he holds the language of hope. I press on. Does that make sense, Stephanie? 
Yes, thank you, Josh. Yeah. Because the more we know God, the more he can do through us. And there's no limit to what God wants to do through us, right? The more we know God, the less Satan and the flesh and the world can do through us. And that's what he's saying in verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. The measure of my knowledge of God is what is going to keep me from sin. So his intention, he's saying, come into fellowship so that you do not sin. However, he knows that the journey to not sinning is a journey. And in that journey, there's going to be stumbling. Right? You know, in the journey of knowing God, you say, okay, God, I noticed that I don't eat properly. Right? And you say, I want to start eating well. So help me, God. <laughs> if you have ever made such a vow, you now realize that the next day is the, is the day you, you eat worse than any other day. You don't even know how it happened. You just saw food that you shouldn't have eaten and you just started eating it. And then you now realize, wait a second, but you now realize your helplessness. We're going to come to all those things when we see why God commands us. Why is it that he commands us? You know, we're going to see how that helps us in our knowledge of him. Right. But he knows that there's going to be stumbling because the economy of life that you have is locked up in your spirit and you were not born with that economy of life. So it means that your natural life has developed a cause, a way of reacting, a way of responding, a way of feeling, a way of understanding. And there's going to be a journey. And so that's why he says, if anyone sins. Now, this verse is very important for us to note, especially when we start reading reading chapter 3, right? Where in the English language, you, you, you read things like, whoever is born of God does not sin, categorically, right? To be able to understand those verses, you, are, you will need to first read this one. Because John is making it very clear here that it is possible for one to sin, right? So he says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. So who is an advocate? An advocate is someone who defends you. And this is part, partly where we tried to conclude last time, right? That when it comes to the matter of fellowship, fellowshipping with the light, fellowshipping with the Father, John presents him as our advocate. You know, if you have a lawyer, a defense lawyer usually, you don't really argue with your lawyer, right? When you're and you don't hide things from your lawyer. You don't become defensive with your lawyer. If not, you don't have an advocate. You have a problem. Because imagine if you go to court and then the opposition finds something that you didn't tell your lawyer. As powerful as your lawyer is, your lawyer will be harmless, right? In that situation. But harmless is not the word. Like your lawyer will be weak to defend you. The best hope that your advocate has to defend you is that your advocate knows everything, even the embarrassing details. You can hide it from everybody else, but not from your advocate. You see, what he's trying to say to us is that sin is probably going to find its way in our lives. We're going to see our fallen nature showing up itself. And when that happens, that's not a time to defend yourself. You know, because part of the ways that we defend ourselves is to rationalize our sin. Oh, it's not, it's not too bad, you know? I mean, I mean, um, I, 
it's just a small thing. You know, we rationalize our sin or we even deny it altogether or we begin to um, pass on the blame. This is a very common thing. You know, we, we try to blame everything else. It was time, it was pressure, it was hunger, it was Satan, it was flesh, it was whatever. We, we blame everything except ourselves. You know, this was what Adam and Eve began to do because you realize that when God came to the, when the voice of God came to the garden, walking in the garden, God already knew what had happened, yet he was still coming. So it means that his act of coming by itself was an act of redemption. But the man didn't realize that the fact that he's still coming, even though he's omnipotent, omniscient, is an act of redemption. He started blaming his wife. Oh, it's the woman you gave me to it. And you see, that's the thing that happens to us. You see, many times you actually do things that displease God. And then you check in the environment. You notice that ah, the anointing is still. In fact, <laughs> after I did this thing, the anointing still increased. I still felt the move of God. I still cried when I worshipped. You know, I still had a great result. And you see, they, and we looked at this in the book of Second Peter, right? How the tenderness of God can become a snare for one soul. Because Peter called it the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked is, is the pattern that the wicked developed because they noticed that the justice of God did not come down hard on them immediately they sinned. And so they, they, they devised a means to live apart from the standards of God just because his justice and his wrath did not come down upon people immediately. Right. But Paul says that the long-suffering of God leads to repentance. So when we find that we have erred, we're not supposed to defend ourselves. In fact, if we don't find that we have erred, but somebody else comes and tells us that we have erred, we're not supposed to defend ourselves. Because if we do, we weaken the hand of our advocate to defend us. If you're going to go into spiritual warfare, let there be nothing in your life that is that Satan will find out <laughs> on the battlefield. Because if that happens and things are being brought in the battlefield, you will need to go back home and start again with your advocate and make sure that your advocate knows everything. And that's why when we're leading people into personal deliverance, we always begin with identifying sin and repenting of it because you don't want to go halfway in the process and Satan still has something on you. Because as powerful as your advocate is, he will not be able to defend you. The Bible says that he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the whole world. The first thing the knowledge of God does for us is that he keeps us from sin. So that the measure of the knowledge of God that we have, as we grow in the knowledge of God, as we grow in oneness with God, please, when, when you hear me say the knowledge of God, as much as possible, we read the word of God, yes? Because that's the gateway. But the ultimate expression of the knowledge of God is a oneness with God. If I read the word of God from morning to evening and I don't practice oneness with God, right? I don't practice the truth. I don't say, God, okay, there's a 90% chance this person is going to annoy me. So I'm not going to respond in the way I want to respond. I'm only going to respond in the way you want me to respond. If we don't make 
a deliberate practice of that. Hmm? If we don't make a deliberate practice of it, then we will never know God, even though we may know many scriptures. Remember, we said that fellowship is staying with something. Staying with it until you know it intimately. Until it becomes part of you, until you know the details. Right? Any thoughts on this? I think, Stephanie, your hand is up. Is this your hand from previously? Or a new Sorry, hand? Sorry, it's an old hand. Sorry. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, it, just, just one thing. Yeah, you said something you said about um, it's not just about reading the word of God, but also practicing oneness. So, I, for the sake of maybe people who may listen in the future, I wanted you to touch a little on that practicality of practicing oneness. Okay, I thought that was actually quite, quite um, self-explanatory. You know, like if I read something in the Word of God, right? Um, there is a level to which I can just read it and I can do an exegesis on it, you know. I can try to understand its historical context. I can, you know, there's there's a lot I can do with it. But I can actually, what I'm supposed to do with it is begin to practice it. If this is the word of God, if this is a, if this is a perspective of God, then it means that this thing is a doorway into knowing God, right? So if the Bible says, for example, that you should love those who hate you, right? And pray for those who spitefully use you. You know, you can read it and say, Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word in our hearts. But you can also read it and then stop and think of those who hate you and say, okay, God, this person hates me and I know this person hates me and this person knows they hate me. What can I do for them? Yeah. Which enemy can I pray for? You see what I mean? Yeah. Yes, because the knowledge of God is oneness with God. Practicing oneness. I believe personally that nobody is going to get deliverance from the flesh. Let's say there's somebody who has who has indulged in the flesh. Let's say the person has indulged in pornography, for example, for so long that pornography has, you know, a controlling influence over their lives, right? Now you can lay hands on that person and perform an instant deliverance. And there are many reasons why that can happen. But in most cases, the cure, the permanent cure for that spirit is that the person will have to develop oneness with God. Day by day, moment by moment, you have to keep saying that thing, help me, God, I'm, I want to touch this thing now. What should I do? Should I stand up? Should I not open it? It is in oneness with God that you eventually lose the appetite for that thing. There is no stop gap up. There's no stopgap formula to it. Even Jesus himself said that when a demon is cast out of a person, it goes wandering in dry places. And when he doesn't find rest, he returns to the same place and then he finds it empty. So Jesus does not expect that the space that was, that was cleared out should remain the way it is. Something should fill it. A, a practice of oneness should fill it. Do you see? Yeah. Thank you, Josh. Okay. So we can continue then in verse 3. It says that now by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. So do you see what I've been saying about practice? This is how we know. You know, 
there's a difference between something that is true, right, by itself, and then you knowing it. Because something can be true, but if you don't know it, Satan can still make a mess of your life, right? Or even if you, you, you don't believe what I'm saying, at the very least, Satan can convince you to take steps and actions outside of what is true, just because you don't know. Which is why when Jesus began to endure the cross, and by that I mean all the processes that led him to the cross, the betrayal of Judas, which was a painful experience, the denial of Peter, um, the, the, the fake trials before Caiaphas and before Pilate and before the high priest and all of those people. You, you, you don't realize how much temptation there was because this was not a powerless person. <laughs> this was a person that he blew air on people and they fell back and he asked them, who did you come to arrest? You don't realize how much temptation there would have been for him to just, just, just prove a point. Just prove a point. But you see, any of those points that Jesus would have proven would have blotted out the effect of salvation because for his blood to be sufficient for sin, he had to be sinless. Pilate needed to confess that I, even though I'm sentencing this man to death, I find no fault in him. So Pilate's testimony was, was, was recorded in heaven that this man is not dying for any sin that he committed. But you see, that testimony would not have stood if Jesus had responded in the flesh. And the only way that Jesus did not respond in the flesh was that the Bible says that he knew. He knew. That's, what, that's how John chapter 13 begins. Jesus, knowing that he had come from God and that he was going back to God, knowing that the Father had given all things into his, into his, into his hands. When, when supper was over, he took a towel, he wrapped it around his shoulder and he washed the disciples' feet. I assure you, you cannot wash another person's feet if you don't know. So John is not arguing that you know him or that he knows you. But he's saying, do you know it? Because if you don't know it, your, your armory is still exposed, right? You are still exposed to the possibility of attack. If you don't know it, do you know it? And he says, by this, we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And we've seen this lying terminology again. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this, we know that we're in him. Now, before we go to verse 6, because verse 6 is very interested, I want us to try to, to, to grapple with a question here. The, the knowledge of God here is tied to the commandments of God. The way we know if you know God, or the way you can know if you know God, is look at the commandments of God and look at your life. Whatever the gap is, then that's your, your gap of the knowledge of God. And it doesn't matter if there are miracles that are happening through your life. It doesn't matter if you're making so much money. It doesn't matter if people are hailing you as the happening thing. You simply look at your life and you look at the commandments of God. And that's how you know what the gap is in your knowledge of God, right? The question then is, why is the knowledge of God tied to commandments? Another way to phrase this question is, why does God command us? 
you know, because we're talking about oneness, intimacy. Oftentimes when we think about oneness and intimacy, we think about feelings and emotions and just, you know, just, just a, I don't know, cozy, cozy, let's just relate. Let's just be crying and laughing and playing. <laughs> but the matter quickly gets into a matter of commandments. And this is where the journey of intimacy breaks down for all of us. For all of us. It is in this matter of commandments. We are willing to accept Jesus, you know, as the God who loves us, who wipes our tears, who is a lovely father. But when it comes to this matter of commandments, that is where the separation begins to happen. Does someone want to attempt that? Why does God command us? Okay, what is a commandment? I know I'm giving you different definitions from what might be used to tonight, but I'm only giving you as I received them, okay? I'm not making them up. I, I'm giving you as I received them, and I hope that it blesses you. You see, a commandment, friends, is something that you cannot accomplish without dependence on God. That's simply what a commandment is. A commandment is the revelation of the nature of God. If it is if it is true that you had that nature, he wouldn't have been commanding you. If it is true that you didn't have the, the tendency for a contrary nature, he wouldn't have been commanding you, right? But a commandment is anything that you cannot do apart from the grace of God. That's why you see that in the Old Testament, right? Even though there were grievous curses that were bound to the breaking of the law, they still broke every single one of them. Despite the, the fact that they knew that, okay, fire and brimstone and judgment, Babylon, Assyria, will happen to us if we break the law. They still broke it so that the fear of punishment itself was not sufficient motivation to keep a commandment because a commandment is a revelation of the character of God and a commandment can only be kept by dependence of God. So a commandment is the way that God invites us into knowing him. So just in case God gives you a commandment, he's not expecting you to do it with your strength. And if you do it with your strength, you are going to fail and fail and fail. And you're going to be thinking, why is my own like this? A commandment is an invitation to know God. Because you're supposed to look at the commandment. You're supposed to look at yourself and know that those two things are very far. And then you run to God. You depend on him. And it is in that process of depending on God that you begin to know God. If God says to you, stay up tonight and pray. And he says it to you, not as a suggestion, but as a commandment. You see, you might look at yourself and say, I've not slept for many days. There's no strength in me. That's exactly the point. The point is that he wants you to know something in him that is beyond your physical weakness. And the only way you can know that thing is to keep his commandment. So don't forget our definition of a commandment. A commandment is something that you cannot do apart from God. And that's why the, the thing that was missing in the old covenant was the principle of grace. So that in the new covenant, it's not the standard of God that changes. Definitely not the moral standard. What changes is grace. That God makes himself user-friendly. He makes himself so available 
that it is easier to trust him. It's easier to depend on him. It's easier to draw upon him. And then the person who walks in such a covenant, your, your outcome is supposed to be superior to the one who didn't have such a covenant. And that's what he then says in verse six. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Now, remember that when John began to introduce Jesus to us in First John chapter one, he told us that, that let's look at it again. He said, the life was manifested. There was, there was something that Jesus manifested that we didn't know before Jesus put it on display. And that thing that he manifested was how to walk with the Father, how to know the Father. And John is saying now in verse 6 of chapter 2, that he who abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walks. So the question is, how did Jesus walk? I don't know. Every time you read the Gospels, I don't know if you pay attention to, to the life of Jesus. Because if you do, you will notice that there were not many things that, that, that made him who he was. In terms of if you're looking at, okay, you know how you can study a man's life and say, what is it about this man? Right? Where will you start? You'll say, okay, what are the things that are constant in his life? There were not many such things in his life. In fact, I can tell you that there were maybe just two of those things that were constant in the life of Jesus that was responsible for the outcome in his life. The first one was his fellowship with the Father. Second one was his commitment to discipleship. Right, in his fellowship with the Father was the secret of his life. All through the book of John, you will read him saying, I, I can of my own self do nothing. The very words I speak are handed out. The very works I'm doing, I have energy, I have capacity, I have the creativity to do so much, but I'm not here to put myself on display. Every work I do is because I see the Father doing it. I'm just a conduit. He put on display oneness with the Father. And John is saying to us that if we say that we abide in him, then there's an expectation. There's an expectation that we should walk as he walked in total dependence, that the words should not be ours anymore, that the reaction shouldn't be ours. And just in case, you find yourself reacting in a way that is yours. <laughs> you, 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 you go to your advocate and don't defend yourself. You go to your advocate and say, I'm wrong. Let it be your reaction that will overflow through me. Friends, this is what it takes. This is what it takes. And I'm not preaching to you, obviously, as somebody who, who has achieved it. I'm just bringing to you the word of God. This is what it takes to be one with the Father. This is what it means to know the Father. To walk with him the same way Jesus walked with him. To move when he moves. To be quiet when he's quiet. To talk when he's, talk, when he's talking. To be gentle when he's gentle. To roar when he roars. To be sensitive. Many Christians are consistent, but they are not sensitive. Many Christians have intensity, but they are not sensitive. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Was that clear to us? Did I confuse you at any point? 
or did I did I use a plain enough language? Was it clear? No, it was very, very clear. Okay. Okay. Any thoughts on this before we move on then? All right. Very clear. Thank you, Joshua. You're welcome. You're welcome. All right, then, Sammy, let's read then from verse 8 to verse 11. Okay, verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in Sorry. you? Sorry, Sammy. From verse 7. Seven, <laughs> yes. Seven. Oh, yeah. seven, yes. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away mm. and the true light is already shining. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Thank you so much, Sami. Wow, so that escalated quickly, right? How did we go from knowing God to hating your brother? Let's, let's build a bridge between those two things, right? Because John cannot obviously be making such a jump between clearly there is a link between those two he's talking about knowing god right and we've said that for john knowing god is oneness with god and then he moves from that into hating your brother that's quite a that's quite a journey isn't it so what reconciles these two thoughts why are we suddenly talking about your brother I think it's in view of the commandment of Jesus, um, you know, when he said, the summary of the law is to love the Lord with all our hearts and mm -hmm. with all our strength. And then the other part of it is to love our brother as ourselves. Yeah. And I think further down in, the, uh, in that expose, mm -hmm. he was trying to illustrate the fact that the, the practical expression of your love for God is the love for the brother because he's the one that you can see <laughs> and it's uh, a conduit of of a um, bearing witness to the fact that you love god who also exactly. created exactly thank you sammy so this is how i'll summarize it there is nothing nothing that tests your knowledge of god as much as the person that is beside you there is nothing that can test your knowledge in case what we are talking about, the knowledge of God is very abstract to you, you know? <laughs> the way to bring it home is to think about you. And by your brother, I don't mean necessarily mean your physical, phys physiological, <laughs> biological brother. By that, I mean the fellow human being, the one that is your neighbor, the one that you are working with, the one that... Um, God has planted in your space. You know, if we were to choose the people who will be in our families, many of us may not choose what we got or who we got, right? If we were to choose the people who are our neighbors, where we live, many of us will not choose who we got, but there is nothing 
that tests our knowledge of God like our relationship with our brother. That is why it is not of God. Isolationism. Because in many areas, in many spheres of, that's what Christianity has become. Isolationism. Isolationism is never of God. Whether it is a pious isolationism or any other kind of isolationism. God in his infinite mercies will put you in close proximity with your brother. Have you realized that it's easier for, for two ladies actually to get along than for a man and a woman to get along in an intimate relationship? I mean, naturally, because like the ladies share a lot in common, right? They feel things, you know, like they know how to cry easily. Um, they just get each other, the same for guys. <laughs> but God didn't make marriage, Adam and Steve, you know? He decided that the only way to work that Adam will have to learn to live with Eve. She's like me, but not like me. You know? And marriage is just an example. You have siblings, right? You have colleagues. You have neighbors. It is the highest test of your knowledge. Nothing helps you grow in the knowledge of God as much as when you constrain yourself to the brotherhood. Which is why I always say to us that there is a place for online church, friends. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a blessing, right? For example, that we can do this Bible study. But you see, there is none of us that is going to become everything that God wants us to become if the online expression is the highest expression of our submission to the body of Christ. Because by virtue of our being online, we cannot really rub off <laughs> each other as much as you know we would do if we commit to a territorial like territorial expression right, of what we're doing. And a territorial expression can be online. But the thing that differentiates it is that it's territorial. You, you guys are focused on the same territory. So you are experiencing the same problems. You are facing the same issues. You are fighting the same enemies. You are, you are moving in one direction. God will have every believer logged into a territorial expression of church so that it can test you and help you know him. Stephanie, your hand is up. Can you go? You are muted, just in case you're talking. Sorry, I'm battling with my Wi-Fi here. So Joshua, I just wanted to understand, this brother that they're talking about in John, in chapter two, is he referring to the brotherhood as in, in church or human beings generally? Because you quickly narrowed it down to the church. Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Well, let me tell you something. There's no difference. There's no difference, actually, between those two things in practice. I know that that's it. So I can actually interchange, interchange them, and there's no problem. Of course, the scripture, right? asks us to especially show kindness, right, to those of the household of faith. And we have to understand that the context of the scripture was that the only community where you could be accepted, right, was the community of the saints in those days. But of course, for us, we have different other communities that don't contain saints, and we cannot say that those are not our brothers. Let me show you what I mean, right? Genesis chapter, 
you know, when you want to address these fundamental questions, it's important to go back to the beginning. So, so this is after the flood and God was relaying again the moral foundations for life. Right. Um, now, verse 4, let's just read from verse 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely, for your life blood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every, every, every man's brother. This is not about Christians or anybody. From the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. You know, the reason why isolationism is such a lie is that we don't recognize the interconnectedness of humanity in God's eyes. God is saying that if you shed blood, you have begun a cycle of justice that that will play out its very last. That's why the people in a land that see bloodshed and keep quiet, according to the scripture, in God's, in God's eyes, he will demand that blood because we saw it and we kept quiet. Right? So my brother is whoever God places closest to me. But it's necessary for me to emphasize, right, that I cannot be so busy with everybody else that I forget the brother or the brothers and sisters that form my core family. And that is the church, right? So that the principle works both ways. That, of course, in your life, God is going to place brothers around you. But in the context of the church, he's going to put brothers around you. Because if there's no church, then none of what we are reading makes any sense. right? There's no context for practice. The way we are going to learn to love the people who are outside the church is by loving those who are in the church. It's the love of Christ that is put on display in that safe context of the church that we can then extend outside the church. So that's why I'm interchanging both of them. Stephanie, did you want to build on your question? Yes, just one more question, Joshua. What about the family, like the real biological family? Yes, it's included. it's included. It's included. What about people that say things like, I don't do family, I do relationships. So basically, they don't care much about their own family, like biological family, but they, they, they kind of take this verse maybe to the extreme, saying, I do brotherhood, I do only treat people in church kind of relationships, not mm. any. I don't know if you understand what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. You know, this is the kind of mindset that comes when people only read the New Testament, right? Because if you just read the scripture that we read, the scripture makes it clear that at the hand of every man, I'm going to require the blood of his brother. That's why Paul says, oh, no man. And it doesn't matter if the man is yours, in your family or not. Oh, no man, nothing but love. At the very least, you owe your brother love. You owe your brother praying for your brother. You owe your brother sharing the gospel with your brother. You owe your brother everything that you can do that is within your power. Of course, your brother has responsibilities, but everything that is within your power you owe it to your brother to do to and for your brother. So John is generic enough here, right? He doesn't say 
he who loves the brotherhood. I am the one who exchanged it, right? Because those two things are interchangeable. Christians are not only supposed to love Christians. In fact, if we loved our brothers in the world as much as we loved our brothers in church, our evangelism would be much more effective than it currently is. Sammy, your hand is up. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I was laughing when <laughs> she said what she said. Because uh, it's a huge issue. Um, we also face some of that here as well. I, I, I think that thing is always, is, is not just born from, because the, the New Testament is actually very robust when it talks about loving people. You know, the New Testament is very, very explicit. The issue is just that um, people, these, these um, excuses or doctrines are developed from um, escapism that is born out of resentment. So people have certain resentment towards maybe family or towards a people group, and then they now use that resentment to develop an escapism doctrine or mindset to say, okay, I have, I can choose to love this and not. So they then say, we do relationships and not family. But yeah, I like what I like the example you picked out, George. He said, Oh no man, nothing. He said, follow peace with all men. Oh no man, nothing but love. Is a general thing. Um, mm -hmm. in fact, in fact, that's one of the biggest. In fact, Christianity has the biggest burdens of all religions I've come to know. Um, mm -hmm. many religions encourage them that you, you your priorities for your people of your faith and the likes, but Christianity tells you it is everybody. Mm -hmm. However, um, just I wanted to point out something that in the few cases where um, the epistles pointed out emphasis on the brotherhood of faith was because from my own little understanding is that people, when, when, we, when we do this spiritual thing, we tend to um, get carried away with with um, the practicality of ministering to needs, psychological needs, emotional needs, and other form of needs. It's very mm. easy to, to just spiritualize everything. So we just come to church, lift up holy hands, pray, cry, worship, feel good. And then we just act like the person next to us is just some uh, mannequin mm. in mm. a shop. So most of those ministry, uh, most of those teachings and that in the New Testament that emphasized on the brotherhood was just, in my opinion, was trying to say, hey, remember that the person that you're fellowship with is a human being. He may have yeah. emotional side. So be willing, like you said, don't just be intense, don't just be consistent, but also also be sensitive. We lost yeah, some. be sensitive to your brethren because we mm -hmm. tend to be sensitive to people in around the world, but we are not sensitive to our brethren. But actually, that love, it is the whole of humanity. And like Josh, you said, if we practice that general love, we'll be more effective in our evangelism. Thank you, Bob. Wow, that's amazing. Stephanie, does that clear your question well? Yes, thank you, Sam. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. I want to add here, though, because I think I understand a little bit, just a little bit of um, the question where the people who make those statements that Stephanie mentioned in her question come from. Um, it is true that God calls us to separation from our families in our hearts many times because he wants to pioneer 
something different from what is in the family context. And if we don't have that level of separation within us, we will never be able to break away from that pattern, right? Remember when some people came to Jesus and said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And he said, the people you are seeing in front of me are my mother and my brother. Of course, he was not dishonoring his mother and his brothers. He was simply just making a point. And that's the point that was made eloquently by God in the life of Abraham. God was calling him into a destiny that didn't look like anything they practiced in the awe of the Chaldeans. And the ex Abraham's biggest problems were the things he took from along with him, including Lot from all of the Chaldeans. Because the only way he was going to step into that destiny was to leave his father's house. So he didn't stop loving them, but he had to leave them in his heart. He had to leave them in his mind. He had to leave them in his soul. So for many of us, if not for all of us, God will call us to leave home. And there will have to be a certain radicality about uh, us, you know, a certain sense of separation that, see, my, my pattern, my path has been determined by another, does not look like how I grew up. And I know that my family's natural inclination is to make me more like how I grew up. So I, I set my face in a way that family does not become a hindrance. You see, but eventually, God's purpose in separating you, right, is so that you can be a blessing to family eventually, right? The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 5, right, that every priest that is ordained for men is taken from among men. So yes, God comes and takes the priest from them, but ultimately, he took you for them. So you must have that balance, right, that the fact that you're supposed to love does not mean that you're supposed to neglect the commandments, the specificities that God has spoken to you about. Does that make sense to us? Josh, if I may just contribute something. Um, okay. Being separate or being called to be separate is not the same as neglect. We can, mm. we can be called out to be separate and still love without neglecting. I think that would yeah. make it easy. Yeah. Thank you, Sami. Okay, let's read the, the last three verses for tonight. Um, verse 12 to verse 14. Sami? Okay, verse 12. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Okay, thank you, Sami. We don't have time to ask questions, but I'm pretty sure all of us know by now that this categorization is not a physical or a natural categorization, right? It should be self-evident by the descriptions that are given. So these are the levels of spiritual maturity that John identifies in the people that he's writing to. He identifies some as fathers, 
he identified others as children. He identifies others as young men. In fact, that's made the more obvious by the fact that this letter was written to congregations that had men and women. So there's no way that he's excluding the women out of this. He's using metaphorical categorization. So this is a person is not a father by age or a child by age, but by encounter. See, the measure of maturity is how much of God do you know? So that somebody can be 75 and still be a child. All the 75 years that the person lived in the flesh has not given the person any advantage at all whatsoever when it comes to knowing God. That's the mark of maturity. You know, there are some people that their knowledge of God is still corrupted. Perhaps, and, and you see, it's possible that our knowledge of God as Father can be corrupted by our experience of our natural Father, right? Or our experience of our national father. You know, there can be a national father, right? Like if you live in North Korea, for example, North Korea has been ruled by the same family for only God knows how long. And it is possible that that, that leadership structure sets up a corrupted vision of the nature of God. Yes, it's possible, right? But the question is, what do you know about the father? Because for some people who are children, they only know the forgiving of sins aspect for his namesake, right? And you see, there's nothing wrong. He's just saying that that's where you are. And he's inviting you to more fellowship. So they know that there is benevolence with the father. They know the love of the father. They know that his, 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 his love is like no other. And they bask in it and they rejoice in it. But you see, they are little children. And by natural nomenclature, there are so many things that cannot be committed to little children. You see, we said that the extent to which God can manifest his glory through our lives is the extent to which we know him. And God's intention, ultimately, is not to have little children. It is very clear in scripture that he's seeking sons. Seeking sons. That's where he's going. That the bondage of corruption can only be undone by the manifestation of the sons of God. So it is okay to begin as a little child that the greatest revelation I have of the father is that he forgives sins. But I must ask, why does he spend so much like that? Right? Because a day of reckoning is coming, friends. A day of accountability is coming. And on that day of reckoning, at the end of this chapter two, right? We're going to look at it next week. John tells us that it's possible to be ashamed before him at his coming. He says, and now little children abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence. So there are one of two possibilities when he appears. It's possible to have confidence and it's possible to be ashamed. And what is it that can make one ashamed? That you're going to see the investment of grace. You're going to see the capacity that kept forgiving your sins and you're going to see that you wasted all of it continuing in sins. The little children know the father. It is still a knowledge, oh. Don't get it wrong because he repeats himself here. I write to you, little children, because you have known him. And the word known there is also genosco. So that it's possible that somebody is trying to be a son. Somebody is trying to be a young man who has not yet known 
the Father. Yes, it's possible that you have not yet known that he accepts you and you are trying to fight Satan. Uh, Satan will puncture you. That's why in the, in the armor, there is the helmet of salvation. It's a, it's a mind, it's a knowledge that you need to wear. And that knowledge is about your place with the Father. That knowledge is about your position with the Father. It's a basic element of warfare. There is a, bless, a, a breastplate of righteousness. Not a righteousness that you earned, but a righteousness that was given to you as a free gift. Those things are necessities in your defense. But you're not supposed to stay there. Like Paul, you and I are supposed to hold on to the language of hope. And the next level, he says, are the young men. He says, I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. And how did they overcome the wicked one? It says, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. This is, this is the outcome of fellowship. You know, it's, you know, all of us have relationship with God. You see, the child has relationship with God, but, this, but the young man has fellowship with God. And so the child is in the Lord, but the young man is strong in the Lord. Be strong. In, it's one thing to be in the Lord. It's another thing to be strong in the Lord. And the difference is your knowledge of the Lord. Daniel 11 verse 32 says that they that know their God. It's not a knowledge that can be handed out, friends. Yes. There are some things that we cannot know by learning. <laughs> we can only know them by reality. By the ministry of the one who dishes out those things. They that know their God, they will be strong. And the product of their strength is that they will do exploit. So you can see that, that by staying in the presence of God, by staying in the word of God, by practicing the word of God, by allowing it to abide in you, you can become strong. It doesn't matter if you see yourself as weak. It doesn't matter if they've called you weak. If only you can stay with God. You will become strong. There is, friends, there is none of us that is strong. No. There's none of us that are strong in ourselves. Do not believe it if any man presents himself as strong. Just ignore what he's saying and look at what he does. Because, you know, many times men don't really know how to talk. So they say something that's different from reality. But ignore what the man is saying and look at what he's doing. Because what he's doing is what is making him strong. And it is fellowship. It is, the, it is practicing the knowledge of God, allowing the word of God to rest, allowing it to rest. You know, some people come to church and they hear a sermon and that's the last time they hear it. They don't hear it again. I hope there's nobody that's like that here. They don't hear it again. Oh, I just heard it once. I've heard it and that's it. You know, they never revisit their notes. They never go back to the scriptures to search the same scriptures. How is the word going to abide? In that case, how are you going to become strong in that case? And then he tells us about the fathers. And he says, the fathers, the fathers, <laughs> they have known him who is from the beginning. Okay. Friends, I must confess to you that there's no way I can use words to explain what this means. But I can attempt, make an attempt. And I can tell you that a time comes in a man's life 
where he begins to trade with eternal materials, where he begins to trade with immortal materials, right? He begins to trade, she begins to trade with eternal wisdom, with immortal wisdom. When people will look at you and say, what manner of wisdom is this? This is not just about being strong. This is not just about having the word of God abiding in you. This is a wisdom that is forged from eternity. This is a power that is forged from eternity. You are operating by resources that are not earthly. A father has the handle of immortal things. And you see, there's none of us that can fake our way into these things. You either have it <laughs> or you don't. But the beautiful thing for, for all of us is that the doorway is open to us and it's a doorway of fellowship. And I want to close tonight by asking us, what do you know about the Father? What do you know about the Father that you were not taught and that you cannot teach somebody else? It's just an organic, intimate, personal knowledge. What is your vision of the Father? What vision of your life has the Father given you? Jesus said that this is eternal life. This is the thing that you will be doing in heaven in case that's the picture you have of, of, of eternity. This is the thing that you will spend the rest of your life doing. This is eternal life. Knowing God, becoming one with him, knowing him, containing him, expressing him, leaving him out. Help us to know you, Jesus. Help us to know you.